Hello everybody, if you'd like to gather around, we're going to start now in a moment. If you'd like to take a seat, there are plenty of seats around and if, if you're short, there's a few down to my right. Thank you. So on behalf of DLR Libraries, I'm delighted to welcome you to the, the lexicon for the launch of Flora McCarthy's wonderful publication, The President's Letters, An Unexpected History of Ireland. <laughs> My name is Marion, I'm the librarian here in the Lexicon since we opened seven years ago in December 2014. And this is a marvellous space for author events. And many of you have been in the audience and indeed have participated in events that we've had over the years, whether it's the Mountains to Sea Book Festival or Library Voices. It's a marvellous space for all those kinds of events. In fact, I was looking back and six years ago to the date, we had Richard Dawkins in here. So that was a, a packed capacity audience just like tonight. And three years ago, um, I was delighted to uh, launch the book People on the Pier uh, by Betty Stenson and myself, a new island book. And the most important thing was that the person who was our guest speaker that evening was Flora McCarthy. Thank you, Flora. <laughs> Betty and I called her our champion and uh, she just supported and encouraged us so much along the way. So we're so pleased to be here today to see her own book to fruition and to celebrate with her today. So we're very, well, very pleased to welcome back New Island Books as well. We've had a very happy experience with this excellent publisher. People on the Pier was shortlisted for the Irish Book of the, the Unpus Irish Book of the Year Awards. And last year, our more, most recent publication, Divine Illumination, which was about the beautiful oratory in Dunleary, won the Chambers Ireland Award for Excellence in the de Decade of Centenaries category. So I think we all agree that New Island Books are a fantastic publisher, and we wish them con continued success with all their publications. They've had a several launches this week, and so it's been a busy and exciting week for them, and this is another one to add to that list. So just before we start, a few brief housekeeping um, matters. The emergency exit is the staircase that you came up, but we also have three other staircases, one beside the lift there, one to my left at the far end, and one at the far end of this. This is level four, in case you're wondering. So the toilets are signposted. There's one to, your, to my left up here through the door, and there's two at the very far end. But I'll be on hand to guide you if you, if, if you're, uh, if you get lost. So if you could put your phones on silent, that would be great. And if you want to use the Wi-Fi, we have it here on a notice. The Wi-Fi is book launch, and the password is McCarthy. So <laughs> I suppose it should be included in the housekeeping that you all get an extra hour tonight, so don't forget to put your <laughs> clocks back. So to finish off, you're all very welcome indeed to this launch event. We're thrilled to be the host venue for it. And I'd like you to welcome Aoife K. Walsh, the commissioning editor for New Island Books, who will be your MC for the evening. Thank you. Thank you, Marion. Um, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to introduce myself and do a little bit of housekeeping, but I'll get right to it. Um, yeah, so I will sort of guide you through this evening, and I promise I won't distract you or keep you too much from our very special guests this evening. Uh, they are New Ireland publisher Edwin Hegel, first woman president of Ireland, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and chair of the elders Mary Robinson. Flora McCarthy, our very wonderful, esteemed author, and... Uh, musician, composer, and archivist, Niamh Nikiara. So thank you to all of them for celebrating with us this evening, and thank you to all of you for coming out. It's so good to be out, out, out. And uh, it occurs to me that this evening is the last kind of proper sunset of the year before 2022. And what better place to have enjoyed it with this beautiful view out of the lexicon. So uh, hurrah for all of us. Um, so I've mentioned our lineup for this evening, and just to mention also that while Niamh plays at the end, you are free to mingle, socially distanced, of course, uh, to have a drink, and Flora will be signing copies of her book uh, over there uh, to your left. So we're also inviting you to line up to throw, shout, 
whisper compliments her way. So if you haven't already, and I see many of you good friends have, uh, we also invite you to buy as many copies of the book as your arms, your tote, your car boot, your bike basket can carry. And my very good colleagues, Michael and Marielle, also over there, are ready and willing to help you with that. So without further ado, our first guest this evening is uh, Edwin Hegel, publisher of New Island Books. Good evening, everybody. I'm obviously delighted to be here. And um, I have to say, we were here three years ago, as you heard from Marion. And I liked the venue so much and the occasion that I thought, I want to have a second one. <laughs> uh, so here we are, <laughs> the second one. And also, if you read today's Irish Times, you would have noticed uh, they get, you know, um, Floor gave the game away because we were talking and not listening to the speakers. And she said to me, I have a book for you. And I says, tell me about it. And uh, what transpired was obviously um, uh, a book, you know, letters, presidential letters. And New Island is a literary and a general publisher. So of course we share the usual obsession, uh, you know, about Irish history, despite my accent, incidentally. Uh, and so the opportunity to chronicle the development of the young Irish state into something that actually provided a home for a nation was exciting. And so it was just very easy to say yes to the proposal. And that's how it happened. Inevitably, of course, there were obstacles to this path because the first one was the pandemic. And it really made it very difficult for Flor to do her research and in the end, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we had to postpone the book by a year because the bookshops were closed and it was really horrible. And uh, I remember, including myself, we were running around last March uh, shouting, what are we going to do? Because, you know, it was seen so hopeless and yet the government helped and it was handled properly and we survived and we're now back with, uh, you know, a good autumn's publication program. The second one, also what happened on the home straight, uh, Aoife's co-editor, Susan McKeever, got quite ill, and, uh, but she's back. And I'd like to give her a special welcome tonight and for all the support and work that she's put into the uh, project. Then, of course, inevitably, nothing without Brexit. So we had the wrong sort of paper, the wrong sort of supply lines, uh, no cartons for covers. And this very moment, our Polish printers, very heroic company, are going around trying to collect cardboard for the last print run and the hard covers. But Flor, the book will be in on time, and it'll be on its it'll be on its way to the bestsellers list. I promise you. <laughs> <coughs> so Mariel, of course, who is the production manager, among the other duties, uh, you know, she needed nerves of steel. Fortunately, she had them, and she still has them. And uh, so thank you, Marielle, for your cool-headedness cool and, and all that. So there we are. To sum all this up in the genesis of that and until, you know, to here, it was one gubu after another. And, you know, so for the younger people here, I want to explain. This is an expression typical of the 80s. So it means grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented. And it all happened to this book. <laughs> Uh, and a further explanation is that uh, it refers to Charles Hawhey, former Taoiseach, and himself a landmark of Irish history. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, indeed. Um, just a brief mention, heroines and heroes in this one. One, of course, Floor and her contributors who kept the faith all along because it was difficult sometimes when you're trying to make a commercially viable project out of it. Eva and Susan to produce such an elegant um, and attractive book. And River Design who put all their work and expertise into it and, you, and it shows, thank you. And then finally, uh, Eva and Marielle who brought the book over the line. So here we are, let's celebrate an entertaining original, illuminating book on social and political history of Ireland. Okay, and please note, I'm sitting beside Floor again, so you never know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.
Thank you, Edwin. So I think it's fair to say that our next guest uh, really needs no introduction, but I've been asked to do a job, and by gosh, I will do it. So Mary Robinson is a barrister by profession and was appointed Reed Professor of Criminal Law in Trinity College Dublin when she was just 25 years of age. With her husband Nicholas, she founded the Irish Centre for European Law in 1988. Elected as a representative of the, of the University of Dublin, she was a member of Shannon Aaron between 1969 and 1989. She served on the Joint Committee on EC Secondary Legislation between 1973 and 1989 and on several of its committees. And she was a member of Dublin City Council in 1979 to 1983. We will never forget the, that on the 3rd of December 1990, Mary Robinson was inaugurated as the seventh president of Ireland and our first woman president. After that, she took up the appointment as United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. She is the current chair of the Elders, an international non-governmental organization of public figures noted as senior statespeople peace activists and human rights advocates who were brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007. Mary is a passionate advocate for gender equality, women's participation in peace building, human dignity and climate justice. And Mary and her special advisor, Bride Rosney, provided enormous support to Floor in accessing Mary's own archives for the making of the book. And for that, we are all very thankful. Neither yesterday nor yesteryear, while she was Chancellor of Trinity College Dublin, Mary also handed me my master's certificate at my graduation ceremony. So it is my honour and my privilege to welcome to the podium, Mary Robinson. Thank you very much, Aoife. And I was delighted to get an advanced copy of the book. I think I'm the first to show the book. Come on. Yeah, this is what it's all about this evening. <laughs> I was delighted to get this advanced copy. And it was just earlier this week. And quite honestly, uh, Nick and myself shared some, oh my God, and did you know that, uh, moments uh, dipping into it. Uh, and I thought the best way of launching the book was to share some of those moments. But before I do that, let me warmly congratulate Flor McCarthy on the idea for this book and then her diligent follow through despite COVID and all we've heard. And also, Edwin, I was going to call you Heigl, but I think it's Hegel. Hegel, yeah, okay. Um, Edwin Hegel and all at uh, New Island for making the book a reality. The book as I think those of you who've already had a chance to look at it, is cleverly constructed around themes, with each chapter being introduced by what I'd describe as a contextual essay by one of the 11 contributors who can be loosely grouped as academics, journalists, and authors. And it was a great decision to apply a generous interpretation of what constitutes a letter. So as well as letters, we find wonderful drawings, printed ephemera, internal mem memos, and telegrams. Remember those? Mm. And what an appropriate setting for the launch. The lexicon here is a welcome landmark venue, and I'm delighted to be here for the first time, I have to admit, but it really is a lovely, lovely venue. So let me start at the beginning with Bunrock Naheran, the Irish constitution adopted in 1937. And I promise you, don't worry, I'm not going to give you a lecture. But as the role of the president was established under the Constitution, it's appropriate to reflect on the time it was adopted. One of the gems, and it really is a gem, Flora, one of the gems <laughs> that you unearthed is a letter written in May 1937 by J.J. Walsh, who was Minister for Posts and Telegraphs of the Irish Free State from 1923 to 1927, exercised by the forthcoming strong headwind. When he arrived, he found, hang on, I skipped a page, I've skipped a page. Um, exercised by the forthcoming constitution, Mr. Walsh wrote to the then leader of the opposition and former Taoiseach, W.T. Cosgrove, in the following terms, and I now quote, I don't know how you stand in regard to the suffragette agitation arising out of the Constitution, but I feel that it is time the wheel was reversed. 
From, this, from the standpoint of this country, in its trials and troubles since the Anglo-Irish War, it was a tragedy that women were enabled to play any part whatsoever. <laughs> Their poisoned fangs were everywhere in evidence, as you are well aware, and the leaders of those days are still leading. <laughs> so... While not a president's letter, I feel this is an important contribution to this book, as it gives a flavour of some perceptions of women and their potential contributions at that time, and maybe somewhat later too. Um, <laughs> focusing on the presidents, let me start by referencing the first document in the book. It's an internal memo written in May 1944 by the secretary to the first president, Douglas Hyde. It is described as a memo on a precedent-setting late-night meeting, which had been sought by the then Taoiseach, Eamon de Valera, after the government had been defeated and wanted a dissolution of the Dáil. What is interesting is not only the constitutional issue addressed that night, but what might be called the backstory. The secretary, Michael McDumphy, gives a very detailed account of the evening's events from the call to him at his home shortly after 9pm until the president's decision to allow the dissolution. McDumphy fixed the meeting between the president and Taoiseach, allowing himself 40 minutes to get to the Oris by car from his home in Clontarf. Unfortunately, he then found out that neither the president's driver nor McDumphy's own son was available to drive him so he had to resort to cycling the six-mile journey against a strong headwind. <laughs> when he arrived, he found the Taoiseach was already there and whisked the president in his bedroom. <laughs> I just want to assure you that if the meeting place was regarded as setting a precedent, it was a precedent not followed by me. <laughs> I worked with four Taoiseach, and I can assure you I never met any one of them in my bedroom. Never, never, never. No, no. Okay. <laughs> a procedure I learned about in this wonderfully subtitled book, An Unexpected History of Ireland, was that of the files being kept on certain guests, and on occasion a caveat being attached to a file. In June 1939, Maud McGon McBride, whose rank or sta status is described as a friend of President Hyde, had a caveat attached to her file saying, and I quote, she was not to be invited to any future function. <laughs> and the reason given was that she wouldn't attend the first presidential garden party on account of what was described as the Coercion Act, which the president was about to sign. A Coercion Act was defined as giving a legal basis for increased state powers to suppress popular discontent and disorder. The act isn't actually named, but assuming the invitations went out a few weeks in advance of the party in late June, my guess is it was the Treason Act, which the president did sign at the end of May of that year. But the story continues, and we read that in 1946, President Sean T. O'Kelly had the caveat lifted from Maud Gone, McBride's file, and asked that an invitation be issued to her to attend that year's event. However, the same document advises that an invitation was not sent to Maud Gon's son, Sean McBride, for, and I quote, reasons recorded on his personal file, P2791. <laughs> Interestingly, McBride, McBride officially launched Clon Napublica, which was established to challenge the stranglehold of Fianna Fáil on Irish politics within days of that garden party. Curious coincidence. Eamon de Valera, of course, was our, our third president, and he was one of the main architects of the 1937 Constitution. And he was central in ensuring that the Constitution... Um... Oh, yes. Sorry, I'm getting mixed up in my papers. Um, ensuring that the role of the president would be largely that of a ceremonial figurehead. And the tone of the presidency set by Hyde was largely followed by both O'Kelly and de Valera, despite the fact that they had been very active politicians for decades. There are standard communications amongst heads of state, 
for example, at times of national celebration or tragedy. However, one unusual one reproduced in the book is from the September 1969 to President de Valera from General C. Odum Ikwu Okuwu, the head of state of what was then the Republic of Biafra. This was the middle of the Nigerian Biafran War from July 1967 to January 1970, which was fought between the government of Nigeria and the secessionist state of Biafra. And what Biafra meant to Irish people at that time was famine, war, underdevelopment, and a country striving for independence. The general wrote to de Valera in the context of the escalation of violence in Northern Ireland and expressed, and I quote, the government and the entire people of Biafra have followed with deep concern and anxiety the sad events which resulted in the loss of lives and property of the Irish people. In 1967, Irish people identified strongly with Biafra, largely driven, I believe, by our famine history and our famine memory. But this letter clearly shows that Biafra, in the middle of its own attempt at succession, at secession, was identifying with Ireland in the belief about, and I quote, the yearnings of all Irish people for national unity and self-determination. They were indeed extraordinary times. Less than 18 months after his inauguration, Erskine, Children's, Erskine Childers became the only Irish president to die in office, as you'll recall. His untimely death meant he had little opportunity to achieve his hopes and aspirations for the office. It is clear from a letter he received in September 1973 from Taoiseach Liam Cosgrave that an issue of particular focus for him was reconciliation on the island of Ireland. Children's, Childers had written to Cosgrave expressing his feelings in relation to an interaction with the Peace Point organization. And he received a very quick response advising that, and again, I quote, that any statement on a subject as sensitive as the North can be construed, whether we like it or not, as having a strong political content. What is good news for one interest may be bad news for another. I do not think that at this point, certainly, the possibility of the Office of President being involved in this type of situation outweighs whatever advantages might be gained by the association of the Office with the efforts of Peace Point. Did I hear anybody mutter um, plus a change? <laughs> I mean, my own approach was uh, to seek forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> Following Childers' sudden death, Karula uh, Dalek became an agreed candidate. Unfortunately, his presidency is usually remembered because of the incident which led to his resignation. But of course, that doesn't really do him or his short presidency justice. In this book, we read a wonderful letter from a Dublin woman, Mrs. Gearan of Drumcondra, who wants the president to consider her son for appointment as King of Ireland's Eye. And the carefully considered and handwritten response from Odolik, the judicial mind was at work, but he was also invoking the words of a poet. So then we come to my immediate predecessor, Paddy Hillary. I think all of us will recall him as a thorough gentleman, which makes a New Year's greeting he received in January 1986 from another head of state all the more extraordinary. In a very long greeting, so-called, President Hillary is told, I do not want to speak ironically about peace in 1985, because it is you who threaten peace, and without peace, isn't, and without you, pieces and pieces. Also, I do not want to be ironic about love because hatred is embodied in you to the extent that you made the most treacherous means of mass killings. And it goes on and on. And <laughs> what head of state wrote in such terms to President Hillary? None other than Libya's Colonel Gaddafi. <laughs> Quite rightly, the Department of Foreign Affairs advised the president should not respond directly <laughs> to the communication. One unexpected effect this unexpected history had on me personally was to uh, remember 
and, uh, you know, really appreciate how a letter can evoke a powerful and funny memory, often in an unexpected way, and I'll just share one. As you know, the president must seek permission from the government to leave the state. Once granted, the secretary to the government conveys the formal approval to the secretary of the president. And one such approval letter is included in this book. It is as follows. I am to inform you that at a meeting held today, the government, in accordance with Article 12.9 of the Constitution, approved the President's leaving of the state from the 16th of January 1993 to the 17th of January 1993, inclusive, for the purpose of attending the international rugby match and social functions in Scotland. <laughs> I was accompanied to the match by a small party, which included Nick and Ireland's ambassador to the UK and we were invited to the pre-match lunch in the committee rooms at Merrifield. Entrance to the committee rooms was up a rather long iron and stone stairs at the back of one of the stands. I was at the front of the group as we duly traipsed up the stairs to be met at the top by a rather large man in uniform. He waited until we were virtually at the top and suddenly extended his arm, looking at me, and pointing to his left and said something to the effect, no women allowed in here, go back down and off, out gate 10. <laughs> the ambassador took over and, eff <laughs> and effectively brushed aside the man, though in a very diplomatic way. And we progressed inside and the first person to greet us was the then and now patron of the Scottish Rugby Union, Princess Anne. I couldn't resist the opportunity and recounted the story and asked her had she had any trouble getting <laughs> had she had any trouble getting in. She smiled knowingly and said, next time they'll recognize you. <laughs> One final letter is from chapter 12 in the book, Flora's own selection, dated the 9th of November 1990, and the date I was declared president-elect. It's a warm letter of congratulations from the then Irish Times journalist, Frank MacDonald. Is Frank in the room? <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it, it doesn't matter. But uh, it, just if he was, I'd say hello. Um, it, it was from Frank MacDonald, and what caught my attention was his PS at the end of the letter. Just in case you missed it, I'm enclosing an article I wrote on the Oros last month. Whatever you do, keep the 50s powder room. <laughs> With that directive ringing in my ears, I ensured that the wonderful 1930s pink powder room remained intact throughout my entire term. I can't be responsible for anything that happened afterwards. <laughs> and now in conclusion, let me resort, as I so often do, to the words of a great Irish poet. Perhaps unsurprisingly on this occasion, I'm depending on my late and dearly missed and beloved friend, Ivan Boland. The August 25th, 2014 issue of The New Yorker carried a poem by Ivan entitled The Lost Art of Letter Writing. And I quote, And if we say an art is lost when it no longer knows how to teach a sorrow to speak, come, see the way we lost it, stacking letters in the attic, going downstairs so as not to see to the fields staring at night as they became memory and in the morning as they became ink, what we did so as not to hear them whispering the only question they knew by heart, the only one they learned from all those epistles of air and unreachable distance, how to ask, is it still there? We mustn't lose the art of letter writing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary. Good luck, Flora, now, going after that. Um, so, Flora McCarthy is a journalist and broadcaster who hosts political debates on Oireachtas TV, interviewing politicians and academics in Ireland and at the European Parliament. 
A former news reporter and newscaster with RTE, she also presented a variety of cultural programs on radio and television and has acted as a consultant for several international human rights organizations. She freelances today and with a passion for history and the arts, she has contributed to numerous events in Ireland's decade of centenaries. So that's Flora's official bio, but if I may, if I may add a little something to that. It was my great pleasure and fortune, and I'm sure my colleagues as well, to work with Flora on her very first book. She was endlessly enthusiastic and careful, thorough and inspired. She worked incredibly hard, first to gather her expert contributors, then to identify the best letters, notes, photos, and other material for her book. And then when we were in lockdown and her access to those archives was completely kiboshed, and I'll just mention those archives now, National Archives, UCD Archives, NUI Galway Archives, and National Library of Ireland. Thank you very much. Flora used every wit and connection and contact she has to think creatively and to keep working through this pandemic. Of all of New Ireland's books over the last 18 months, the President's Letters was the one most affected by coronavirus and all those words and phrases that we learned anew during the crisis. Like no other, pivot, hybrid, work from home, before times, meaningful Christmas, new normal, recalibrate, meal kit, close contact, bubble, flatten the curve. Floor did them all, she ate them all, she slept them all, she spoke them all, she drank them all, and despite it all, to bring you this book. I'm sure it was never her intention, but Flora McCarthy has set the bar for being a COVID author. Congratulations, Flora. And follow that. Thank you very much, Aoife, for those wonderful words. And you were all just a joy to work with. Um, look forward to the next one. Edwin, I'll talk to you in a minute. <laughs> um, thank you all very, very much for coming as well. And I know some of you have travelled from uh, Blackrock, <laughs> London, and, and all over the place. And more of you are travelling tomorrow morning, like, like Mary is. I must start with a very, very special word of thanks to former President of Ireland, Mary Robinson. Mary, for those wonderful, truly wonderful words about the book, for believing in the project, for granting me early access to your extensive archive, for choosing memorable letters, for contributing a beautiful essay, for being here this evening to officially launch the President's Letters, and for doing the very best impersonation of JJ Walsh and his fangs <laughs> that I could possibly imagine. Um, from the start, you've endorsed this project and supported it, and I am eternally grateful. Thank you so much. I still can't quite believe that a random trip into a bookshop um, three or four years ago, looking for a book on correspondence to and from the Aris, could have led to today uh, a president uh, launching my book. So really, this is uh, a very special moment. Um, to Marion Keyes and the wonderful uh, lexicon, I just want to say, I think this is the most spectacular venue, as Mary said, um, the new cultural heartbeat of Dunleary. And looking out here earlier, I was thinking, you couldn't really have a more apt location for a launch, given Dunleary's maritime history. There have been quite a few launches here over the centuries. I was thinking, all we need is a queen with a bottle of champagne on a rope. Um, but there is another reason, of course, why it's fitting. And Edwin mentioned that earlier, and so did Marion. Almost exactly three years ago, I stood here to say a few words at the launch of their book. Uh, there was also a very poignant um, reason I had to mention, and it had been my uh, younger sibling, Barry, was due to be here with us. Uh, there was a photograph of him in that particular book and he died two weeks beforehand, so he didn't make it. I found it really difficult to say those words, but I got them out, and that's what got me talking to Edwin afterwards, and he just said, you know, well done. So I seized the moment, and what I actually said to him was, Edwin, 
It must be really annoying being you at events such as this, when people come up to you and say, hey, I've got an idea for a book. Well, yes, he said, it can be, but you get used to it. So, Flor, what's your great idea? <laughs> and here it is. To Edwin and to all at New Island, thank you for making this happen and for navigating us through the pandemic. Aoife K. Walsh, is there anything that you can't do in the world of books? It was a masterclass watching you put this together from near and from afar. Susan McKeever, the most brilliant editor um, I could have wished for, who could see the sweep of this book as well as the minute details. I'll miss our spats over semicolons. <laughs> and I'm right about commas. <laughs> Mariel Deegan, who steered the good ship New Island and who always does so brilliantly, and to Quiva, who announces its arrival, thank you for your superb step, uh, help and support to this newbie on board. And thanks also to Stephen Reid and to book publicist Peter O'Connell, all at New Island and all here at Lexicon for your wonderful presentation tonight. And in some way, all of you, here have a role in this project. We have our president, of course, and I'm also really honoured that we have some of the family members of previous presidents with us, people who very, very kindly gave me um, permission to reproduce the correspondence. Also, how lucky am I to have a lineup of world-class writers, looking at a few of them, um, and historians introducing each chapter of the book. People say this book was a really good idea. Personally, I think my best idea was getting other people to write most of it. <laughs> I love how each of you ran with the brief, bringing your own individual take and expertise to each topic and providing the perfect context for readers in which to enjoy the letters. And that's what this is a book about. I want people to enjoy it. It is our heritage. And if I can shine a little spotlight some way on this section of our heritage, which hasn't really been looked at before, then I will be very happy. And I'll start volume two. <laughs> and if, Mary, you had had a meeting with a Taoiseach in the bedroom in the Aris, I would have found it, so I believe you. <laughs> Thank you so much to our contributors, David McCullough, Rory Montgomery, Martina Devlin, Katrina Crow, Harry McGee, Samantha Barry, Joseph O'Connor, Justine McCarthy, Lee's Hand, Paul Rouse, and Terry McCarthy. Terry Carney. <laughs> um, a few of them couldn't make it uh, here tonight, including my great friend, David McCullough. And he has a good reason, I think. He's hosting the 21st birthday party of Rosie, his only child, his daughter, at home. And that's on at the moment. In fact, he said, right about now, I'll be hoovering the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll forgive him this once. Um, I'm also absolutely delighted that some of the letter writers themselves are here. These are the stars of the book. Um, people who very kind me, kindly allowed me to reproduce their secret communication with Ireland's first citizen. Sometimes these letters written at a very young age um, and many of them gave me unbelievable assistance. Um, I'm thinking of one particular man who is 100 years old and he's in Donahadee County Down and he personally Googled a printer shop to try and go and scan his letter that he received from the president. He'd also received one from Queen Elizabeth, but he was more interested in the letter from Michael D. Higgins. Um, but they all gave incredible help and this book would not have been possible to make without them. And here it is. More than 350 letters, telegrams, cards, as Mary said, memos, drawings from all nine presidents. Reading and rereading their correspondence has led me to have a much greater insight into the Irish presidency, the office, and how it evolved over the decades since 1937. And as David McCullough also wrote in his essay, the president's role in day-to-day -day politics is very clear. He or she doesn't have one. Um, yet, as the decades have passed and successive presidents have got into their stride, their role in Irish society has evolved into one of incredible power and importance. The person occupying the Oris can 
represent the public in a way that is above daily politics. The president can become a totemic figure for some of the great themes of our age, inclusion, equality, anti-racism, international solidarity, climate action. The president is the person who can speak out on our behalf, represent our views, articulate them at the top table, and if needed, diplomatic niceties being observed, give the table a good bang if necessary. I'm sure Mary never did that. <laughs> but writing this book has also helped me to get a greater understanding of each of our presidents, not just as office holders, but as individuals, as people. If I could interview the earlier presidents, I would love to ask Douglas Hyde, for example, about his interest in languages. A polyglot, as comfortable speaking French, as Spanish, as Hebrew. He was one of the last fluent speakers of a, a Roscommon dialect of Irish. Shantiu Kelly had a fascinating backstory, including being an Irish government representative at Versailles, the conference uh, after World War I, to secure recognition for this small fledgling state. state. He also held great parties, I believe, at the Oris. I'm still looking for the evidence of those. I was unaware that Eamon de Valera had a fascination with space travel, and on the same day was in contact with both Moscow and Washington, DC, about their lunar expeditions during the height of the Cold War. Erskine Childers bridged the gap between our revolutionary period and statehood. The son of a man who was executed by the state ended up being elected head of state. There is an amazing letter in here on that. Karula Dolly, the distinguished legal scholar who took over the presidency after Childers' sudden death, then resigned from office, as Mary mentioned, amid unprecedented political controversy. Odali was also a linguist and a passionate patron of the arts and a prolific letter writer, many of his letters to children and handwritten. Paddy Hillary was a steady hand at the Oris, a much-loved president, and also an experienced politician in Doyle Aaron and abroad as our first European commissioner. And he was a steely president who, when the political pressure came on the Oris, refused to take calls from the Doyle to dissolve parliament. Our guest of honour tonight, of course, Mary Robinson, pushed the boundaries of the presidency further still, whether it was engaging with the diaspora, that famous light is still there in the window, a hand of friendship across the border, or shining a light metaphorically on the most vulnerable people around the world. On the eve of COP26 in Glasgow, amid global concerns about climate change, your work has never been more appreciated, Mary. Mary McAleese continued to reshape our presidency. I was so delighted that she, along with Mary Robinson, agreed to participate in the project and select some notable letters from her uh, days in office. They reflect the themes of her presidency, building bridges on this island, while also being a voice for inclusion and equality. Finally, President Michael D. Higgins, who can't contribute directly to the book while he's still in office, but we've still been able to uh, represent his work both at home and abroad through letters. Letters, as many of you will have read, to heads of state, rock stars, poets, and his new counterpart in the White House, whom he addressed, Mr. President Joe Ahara. To President Higgins and all at our Snook Throne, my thanks for engaging with the project right from the start. Former Secretary General, Art O'Leary, your encouragement and advice was invaluable. So many people have helped bring the book to life, um, some of them double-jobbing. Niamh Nihara, archivist extraordinaire, went through more than 600 boxes of the Mary Robinson archive. In fact, they found a few more recently. Six, <laughs> 750. Um, to identify correspondence files, those Friday phone calls to me, look what I just found, kept me going. Thank you, Niamh, and especially also to the uh, James Hardiman Library at NUI Galway. To Bride Rosney for your superb advice on the Mary Robinson papers. You seem to remember every single event that happened throughout that presidency and since. And to Helen Carney for your help with the Mary McAleese files. Um, my gratitude to the families of the late presidents, Hyde O'Kelly, De Valera, Childers O'Dolly and Hillary. I feel so privileged to have had access, the access that I had to those private papers, sometimes your photographic albums. Um, special thanks to Rurio Cuive, 
and to Erskine Childers and to Mary Seely for showing me the Hyde family photos over tea and delicious homemade Ammon squares across the bay in Hoth. Thanks for the recipes too. Um, Ooh. To my friends, wow, I think you know who you are. There are so many who helped, but in particular in lockdown, there are a few that I really need to mention and without whom it would have been impossible to, to keep this project going and stay sane. Nora Byrne, I'm looking at you. Um, next door neighbour, we had such fun actually discussing the book mostly Friday evening at six o'clock became a very special moment with um, a glass of wine that Nora's uh, very clever sons are creating a little bar counter over the fence for us <laughs> so we look forward we'll keep that going to Jackie Finnegan and the farm girls long story uh, the walks around the neighborhood um, were just wonderful and thank you to Aileen O'Mara, Rosari Ryan, Emer Beasley, Sheila Larkin um, and to Marguerite Cooney Kinsla. Um, I don't know how to thank you, but I'll try to think of a few ways. Writing a book such as this um, is time consuming and inevitably takes a toll on family life. Um, to my brother Dan, for, for wisdom, he's written a few books uh, already and doesn't tire of telling me so. Um, thanks for the advice, kid. To Paul, Isabel and James, thank you for bearing with me as I wrote the book, I'm back. <laughs> Be warned. <laughs> um, I'm going to finish with a little description. And Marion, I think I need your extra hour tonight for all the thank yous. A little description in the book of something that happened outside the window here on the 18th of April in 1949. And I suppose because I live in Dunleary, we've got a, a real attachment to this place. Um, Paul Cunningham, my husband, was born, I believe, in a car park just of, <laughs> sort of there. Yes, my parents held their engagement party in the Royal Marine Hotel. Um, Dunleary is very, uh, very important to us. Uh, it was, of course, the moment that Ireland became a republic. Uh, midnight on Easter Sunday, the 17th, 18th of April, 1949. The occasion was marked by a 21-gun salute fired at midnight from O'Connell Bridge. But in Dunleary, there's a beautiful description in the Irish Independent. A torchlit procession headed by a band marched from Black Rock to Dean's Grange, Cabin Teeley, Fox Rock, Carrick Mines and Cornell's Court, where the final rally was held. Bonfires dotted the countryside, countryside. <laughs> from Rathfarnham to Dean's Grange. The ceremonies began one minute after midnight at Dunleary with a fanfare of trumpets and a roll of drums as the tricolour was broken on the masthead near the saluting station on the East Pier. A naval guard of honour presented arms and searchlights from corvettes in the bay spotted the flag as it ascended the mast, then boomed out salute of 21 guns fired across the bay. Um, at 10 second intervals, the playing of the national anthem concluded the ceremony, which was witnessed by a huge concourse of people, including a goodly number of English visitors who were spending their holidays in hotels around the area. <laughs> Just paints a picture. Okay, we have a very special little surprise for you, Mary. And I would just like to finish, conclude by introducing Niamh Nikara, who we've mentioned, your archivist in NUI Galway. And I mentioned that some people are just too talented. Niamh is also a superb professional musician. From Killarney, Niamh has been influenced by the wealth of local Schlievluchra musicians over the years and has been winning awards for both fiddle and concertina since she was four years old. She toured for eight years as a soloist with Riverdance and her fifth album, Donnelly's Arm, has just been released. As a special treat for you, Mary, Niamh is going to play for us on concertina, what else but Manana Heron. Thank you very much.